Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast. For another uh, episode of Going Deeper Online, I'm joined here by a fabulous panel in the top left for me, although that won't mean anything to you if you're listening, but in the top left for me is my good friend, Pastor Mark Bertrand <clears throat> from Simcoe, Ontario. Uh, we have as well Pastor Rob Brockman from Georgetown, and then we have Dr. Wyatt Graham, the Executive Director of TGC Canada. So thank you all for being with me today. Good to be here, Paul. Thank you. Thank, thank you. All right, well, I want to jump right in again. Uh, in our first column of readings this week, we finished the book of Genesis, and uh, we started the book of uh, Exodus. We'll get into that in just a minute. But at the end of, of the book of Genesis, really the emphasis is on providence. And there is a marvelous verse I want to read to you. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph, speaking to his brothers, says, As for me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that verse is kind of the, the Old Testament version of a probably a better known verse that's making the same point, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So how does that work out? Uh, how does a, a good God make use of evil means and bad choices to bring about his, his good and perfect will? How does that work out? Doesn't that make God an accomplice to evil? Mark, uh, why don't you get us started with that? Because that's an important conversation, and it's one that, that we're going to meet again and again as we work our way through the Bible. Right. Uh, so I'm going to try to give you just a couple minutes to, to kind of prime the pump, and I'm going to try not to be overly technical um, using, you know, terms like uh, primary, first cause, second cause kind of stuff. Um, but let's say say this when god finished creation he said it was good it was good it was good it was very good um and uh so god did not create sin uh and, and sin is really the absence of, of something in some ways um jonathan edwards if you want your brain to melt go ahead and get yourself a couple copies of jonathan edwards but i mean he, he's one of the great guys on this kind of thing um he makes the point in a in a in a, an article directly on this, is God the, the author of evil? He said to, to make God the author of evil would be to make the sun the author of darkness. It is, hmm. uh, evil is the absence of, um, of God's direct presence and influence. Um, but let, let me just go down a different path. I, I don't want to ramble too much, but um, Here's the, here's the, uh, this is where the rubber really meets the road. Um, God created Satan, uh, knowing as he did that Satan would fall. God created Adam and Eve, knowing that Adam and Eve would fall. Um, God has not been surprised by any of these things. And so the, the, the shortest answer I can give to this is that God being who God is, decided to do what he did because the result in the end would be better than if he did not create. He knows that in creating and in, in the fall and in sin, he is going to have to send his son who is going to have to incarnate himself, who's going to have to give himself up. And you can actually read in, in Acts chapter 2 uh, in, in the sermon that Paul uh, Paul Peter gives on the uh, day of Pentecost. Uh, uh, let me just find it here. Um, here, um, 
Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Um, this is God using evil to bring about the ultimate good. And, and so at the end of this little ramble I'm on, the, the question that you have to ask, and probably the most important question you can ask, is, is what is the chief end for which God created the world? What was God's purpose in creation? And the answer is not his purpose was to redeem mankind. His purpose was to make his glory known. And the only way that his glory could be fully known was to do things the way he did them so that he could take on flesh, come down, bear the sin of mankind, redeem them, and adopt them into his family. And uh, all of that, we could probably have 27 sessions like this, and we'd still be plumbing the depths of that. Yeah, that's a good introduction, though. Uh, join in, jump in, uh, help flesh that out for us, guys. Uh, first, I, I loved what, what Mark said. I think it's awesome. And I think you could have used all sorts of distinctions. First, second cause, I'd be happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's great. I, I agree with that. And I also think sometimes we can even say it even more simply is, look, God controls everything. It's a mystery, but we're also somehow accountable for our actions. So when we do evil, it's not God doing it we're doing it and we're accountable. And so that's like a really simple blunt force trauma answer. <laughs> but I also think it's important just to say that we're responsible for, for human evil. It is a privation as, as, you, as Mark said, but we're responsible for it. It's, it's us, not God. And making that uh, clear, I think is, is one key to good theology. Yeah. And I think what you said, why is, is like good. There's like the Bible holds different tensions in play. And Mark, you went to the right place. Like the clearest place where we see these tensions in play is at atonement is at the cross. You see mm -hmm. that God, God setting a definite plan and you see a law, lawless men offering up Christ. And it's just a beautiful, this is the place to go. And clearly Peter and he's preaching, he doesn't, he holds these things in tension. Right. And, and that's kind of what we need to do. So there's a sense of mystery here, a sense of like, mm -hmm. God is just that powerful. He is just that holy. He is that good that he can, although mankind commits sin, he can still remain blameless and right and still yet sovereignly ordaining purposes for good, like with Joseph or with the cross, with Christ. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of this just comes down to a bit of our finite ability to comprehend how God, God could do this. Like it's Isaiah 45 7 says god forms light and darkness he makes well-being he creates calamity he does all these things but god is also good there he cannot be responsible for responsible for morally culpable for evil so these are the tensions we just got to hold i think if i was talking it also depends on who I, how i would answer this who i'm talking to if i'm talking to somebody apologetically maybe an unbeliever i think i would have one conversation but if I'm talking to a brother or sister in Christ who trauma has happened in their life, pain and yeah. sorrow, and they're wrestling with this, I think I would, I would just say, you know, Jesus empathizes with you. Hebrews, man, we got a high priest who empathizes with you. And in the garden of Gethsemane, as he struggled with his own battle of God's sovereign will, which was going to lead him 
into great such sorrow, great pain, such passion and anguish. You know, Jesus can empathize. He knew Isaiah 53. He knew the suffering servant. And so, the, and so Jesus gets it. Jesus empathizes with you in this pain. And he experienced it, this tension, uh, more than any of us ever will. And I, and I think I'm so glad you said that, Rob, because I, I, I do think we have to talk about this differently, depending on who we're talking about. Uh, I, I wish I'd known we were going to go here because um, I can't bring the quote to the to give you the page number or anything. But in one of Calvin's letters to a woman who'd lost a child, um, he he go he stays within the, the, the boundaries of this doctrine. But he says something we probably wouldn't expect. She's she basically asks him, she says, you know, how could God do this? I've lost my child. And, and he says, God didn't do this. Um, sickness did this or whatever it was. I, th I, mean, I think it was disease that killed her, her child. She says, God permitted this, but God didn't do this. God wants only good, for blah, blah, blah. And, and he, he was very pastoral dealing with her. But then when he's dealing with, with theologians, he would say that very differently. Uh, he would yeah. talk about how, you know, the, the differences between decretive will and all, he would get into those technical terms. Um, but I, I, I do think you're right. We would say this slightly different. This is where I think actually negative theology is very helpful. Negative theology is more common in the Eastern Orthodox tradition than it is in the Western tradition. But the Eastern Orthodox people are more comfortable with mystery. So they tend to say uh, there's, like a, there's like a zone. Uh, there's, a, there's a left boundary and a right boundary. And as long as you don't cross the left or the right boundary, you're okay. So they would say, don't say God is the author of evil. But also don't say God is surprised by this event. Don't say either of those things. In between, there's the truth, where, mm. where God ultimately ordains everything, but God is not the author of evil. Mm. But yeah, you probably never split the, split that hair very well. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting. My, so my daughter, who's I have to admit, she's actually smarter than I am, and I mean that like in a true way. Like she'll she'll ask me questions like, "Why did God uh, know all things and still create Satan to be evil?" Why would he do that if he wants to keep us safe? And so actually, since she's been three, we've had conversations like this, uh, similar, different kinds of things. Because so I have to talk to a, a, a three, four, five-year-old and work through these things. So I think there's a, a different layer. And I think I might have re read that same letter that Kelvin wrote. So there's that. Yeah, also, I'd love to have that reference at, mm, at my yeah, fingertips. I'll, yeah, I, I want to say like there's that very pastoral level. There's also a, a nerd level I want to bring out for the, old, for the super nerds who are listening to this. This is a book by Richard Muller called Divine Will and Human Choice, published in 2019 by Baker Academic Press. If, if you're someone who's like dying just to have a more philosophical understanding of how this could, could work, read that book. It'll break your brain, but it, for someone who's, who's into that kind of thing, it, it is useful to kind of help you get concepts. There's a blog actually, so uh, read Wyatt's giant book, uh, but, but also... <laughs> <laughs> Because I get asked this all the time, I have I have some more accessible resources at my fingertips. There's a blog that R.C. Sproul wrote a number of years ago, um, and uh, it's called The Three Wills of God. And I, th I think it's on um, Monergism website as opposed to um, the Ligonier website. Ligonier. But so if you just Google it, R.C. Sproul, The Three Wills of God, it comes up immediately. And and he he says it's helpful to, to walk people through the three different ways we talk about God's will. Uh, the decretive will. So that's God. That's what we're talking about. The sovereign providential, you know, from eternity past, God said that this is where the, the bus would go. That one, uh, the preceptive will of God precepts as in commands. That's like, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's never God's will for you to commit adultery, period. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that when you commit adultery that the universe is off its rails that, uh, because the, the preceptive will is different than the decretive will. And then, and then here's the pastoral category that Calvin called upon, number three, the permissive will. And that refers to things that God allows, but also bends towards his ultimate purpose, which mm -hmm. is, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8, 28. All these things are going to be bent towards our good. It may take time, may take decades. It may not work out until eternity, but it's going to be bent towards his ultimate purpose, which is good. I think yeah. those three categories are massively, massively helpful. And, and again, you can find that just type in R.C. Sproul, the three wills of God. I think as well, like if there was somebody, maybe there's somebody who's listening to this, who's a bit more further along and they're like, hey, I can handle, I can handle a little something. Then I think there would be a, my approach to that, the mature Christian who, give me an answer. Uh, it was last week. We're in Job 9. And Job says something, he goes, God is not a man as, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Yeah. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on both of us, essentially meaning like, we don't get to take God to trial. Like yeah. there, yeah, well there's that, that's more mature answer to somebody who's a bit further along going, you know, it's kind of Paul's response in Romans nine, you know, like, yeah. Hey, God's God. Yeah. 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 Right on. Yeah. Well said. Uh, in column one this week, we finished Genesis and uh, entered into Exodus. And as always, we try to, when we enter into new books, try to give a little bit of a of an introduction to help our readers. So, Rob, uh, give us a, a three minute introduction to the second book of Moses, book of Exodus. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So, so Exodus picks up a number of generations after um, Joseph and his brothers. It, it tells us they've gr grown so numerous. That Pharaoh, who this Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph later on, decides to subjugate and enslave the people of Israel so they would not overthrow the Egyptians. And this shouldn't be a surprise to the reader because actually back in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that his offspring will spend 400 years in affliction. Yeah. So he warns Abraham of this. So the book of Exodus is essentially how God fulfills his promise to Abraham and liberates his people out of the hand of Pharaoh and how he brings them with much labor and frustration and struggle to come to Mount Sinai where they receive the Lord's commandment. So this book covers about 80 years and it really follows the life uh, of the book's main character who is kind of Moses. Um, and it's quite, it's very important to realize how may, how key Exodus is and how much of what happens at Exodus shapes the rest of the biblical narrative. Yeah. And, and there are some key themes and features that happen in here that will have huge significance on the point of the Bible story. God reveals himself in this new way, Yahweh, this covenant. He's, he identifies himself to Moses. I am that I am. Moses' position as a suffering, rejected savior um, is key in, in when we think about Christ and Christ's role. And then the theme of redemption by the blood of the lamb in the Passover, much of the Bible will look back on Exodus yeah. and especially when it comes to our understanding of Christ uh, as our, as perfect revelation of God, uh, as lawgiver, as a better Moses, Christ's work in atonement. So much of how we're meant to understand Christ's work really kind of, we find the roots exegetically in, in Exodus and much of the worship of the Bible 
looks back on what happens in Exodus. A lot of the Psalms, it's always where they're always looking back on how God delivered yeah. them from Egypt, how God delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. Yeah. Um, and I think the more I go back and read Exodus, it's really a book about grace, God's grace to respond to his people's affliction, God's grace to use Moses, God's grace to put up with disobedient and complaining people, God's grace to condescend and then dwell with them. Yeah. At the end of the book, actually, Alec Mortier says this. He says, it's a book of the grace of God who first saves, then accompanies, and then indwells with his people. And at the center of it, we have the truth of God's law and yeah. grace. So Exodus reveals a God who is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I'm, I podcasted through Exodus in 2009. I think it was 2019. And uh, it was, you know, every book of the Bible is life-changing, but I, I would say Exodus in a particular way. So many of the paradigmatic stories that, that so perfectly illustrate everything in the Christian life yeah. come out of Exodus, right? Like the, the Exodus is the illustration in advance of our salvation in Christ. You think of the, the manna stories, you think of the grumbling stories, you think of the water from the rock stories. It, it is all of these, these things, they, they establish the contours of faith that, that then Christ steps into. So it is absolutely formative and absolutely glorious and soul satisfying. You guys want to jump in? Tell us what you love about Exodus. Give us, give us 15 seconds. I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say don't stop at Exodus 18. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to stop there. Uh, Exodus. Love the law. Is that where you're going? <laughs> Exodus 19 to 40. I, yeah. I, I don't know where I was going. Uh, no, I don't know if I was going to say that, but Exodus 19 to 40. I mean, I just think is for me, possibly the coolest place in the old Testament and I think you could spend, and I, I basically spent a year there, 2019, 2020. Uh, it is such a fascinating, helpful, beneficial, clarifying, Christ-pointing, uh, eye-opening portion of scripture to understand how God interacts with humanity, mm. how we interact with God. I think the idea of Moses going up and down the mountain, having dinner halfway through, going to the yeah. most holy place of gloom has a lot to say about the Christian life. I think second Corinthians three and four hit on that. The book of Hebrews is opened up. The veil is the flesh of Christ in Hebrews. It is, it is like a key that you put into the new Testament in a sense and open. You're like, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And which, which again it. is why you've got to read the Bible multiple yeah. times. Like, so yeah. if you're a first time Bible reader uh, and, and you're just plugging into Exodus this week, uh, just understand this. You're going to love this story, but I'll tell you what, Next year, when you come back around in RMM again, after having read the New Testament twice, you're going to love it even more. Mm. Um, That's right. Yeah, because these things, the, it's like the hermeneutical spiral. Uh, I think it's Graham Osborne who said that, right? Each, each time we go around, we understand what we're seeing Osborne. now right underneath our eyes. We see, understand it better. Yeah. yeah. Mark, did you want to give us 15 seconds on Exodus? Or? Yeah, sure. You guys have, have hit all the, 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 the big... The low-hanging fruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, there's an interesting, one of the interesting things, and this this comes from years and years and years of Bible reading, you just start picking up little ribbons where you're like, hey, I see something here. I, yeah. You know, um, I, I know last year as I was going through, I, I thought, man, um, this is, there is a, um, the destruction of sons, Pharaoh is 
seeking to destroy the sons of of Israel. I mean, he throw he doesn't throw the girls into the Nile. He says, throw the boys into the Nile. Destroy the the boys. Destroy the males. And and um, you know, at the at the Passover, it's it's the loss of it, it's a it's God returns it back on on Pharaoh's head with interest. Um, it's the loss of of every firstborn. Um, you know, just just sort of seeing some of those little uh, things at play. So I mean, that's that's not low-hanging fruit, and that's probably not deeply, deeply important, but it's very interesting as you come to the New Testament that you recognize that it, it is the Son um, who is given um, and is, is sacrificed in order to bring about salvation. Yeah, yeah there's so much. I mean, what's beautiful, of course, about the Bible is we, we can talk from, you know, in terms of literary symbols and all that kind of stuff, but, it, but it's also real. It's history. It happened, but God, God writes good history. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's move forward now into Job, uh, our second column of, New, of Old Testament uh, readings. We we hit some really interesting things in Job this week that I want to try and pull out for us. In Job thirteen fifteen, we met one of the greatest phrases in all the Bible, and and Calvin's sermon on Job thirteen is one of the best sermons you'll ever read. I'd encourage everybody to get a hold of it. And so, I actually. I have the verse memorized in terms of how Calvin cited it, but I cannot find that in any English translation. So I'll just say it the way it is in Calvin's sermon. But Job 13, 15, yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And uh, that's that's a, one of those great faith explosions in Job where Job says, listen, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why this is happening to me, but I'll tell you what, yea, though he slay me yet will I trust him. That is incredible. And, and I think that's one of the encouragements in, in Job, maybe for us. Like when you think about what this brother was going through, you, you know, he, his 10 children had died. He, he lost his entire business. He lost his health. He wasn't getting on with his wife. Uh, every, and his, now his, friend, his best friends were giving him a hard go. Everything had gone wrong in Job's life. Yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Uh, that, that's incredible. This is a storm proof life. So Wyatt, uh, get us started on that. Any advice for the, for the younger Christian who is maybe under this pandemic, we know we've talked a lot about this pandemic in Providence. This is a storm. I don't think it's a Job size storm, like not too, not too many of us. Some, some people have lost their lives in this, but for most of us, this is largely about inconvenience. Um, this is largely a about family loss. We're not being able to get together with loved ones. We're not going to baseball games. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a thing, but it's not a Job-level catastrophe. And yet, um, some of us are not able to say, as Job said, yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So how can we maybe build up to, to having a storm-proof life? Give us some thoughts on that. I want to make one, one observation that maybe is quite obvious, but maybe is not the first observation someone would make. And then I'll let you guys kind of fill in the, the practical steps. And it's really this, what is going on in the book of Job? And think about this, Job, the moment that his life goes south, gets visited by friends. And what do they talk about? His first way of, uh, first thing to do is, why is this happening? Who is God? What is all the significance of the world and universe and cosmos of the, the great sea animals, they talk all these various things. How does it work? And I think Job is, is implying something for us to understand. 
that he sees all of life as being God's cosmos. He sees every effect in the world that's created as tracing back to his cause. He goes outside, or we might go outside and see a tree and a squirrel. And we say, like, just some simple things. These are effects of the glory of God's creation. Everything I do, the air that I breathe is something that God has been a part of. When you go and talk to your friends, your family, is this the focus? I mean, he is actually naming reality. That is, everything is God's effect, created effect. Everything's about God and his creation. Yeah. And yet, sometimes we talk as if that reality is just not real. Hmm. Where we talk about sub-reality, that everything's sports, everything's money, everything's whatever. Sub-reality, that's a very good phrase. Carry and on. so just my, my very simple observation is Job shows us a way of seeing the universe that is unlike 21st century Canadian modern materialistic eyes. Now, the practical steps I'll let you guys jump into. I just think that's so valuable to bring out. No, I, I, well, I, I love what you brought out. Let's all jump in, but let's also appreciate what you just said. The, the, the issue is he's able to handle this because of, of his perspective level, like what he's looking at. Job and his friends uh, are always talking about the ultimate author. They're always talking at the level of ultimate reality. Nobody questions whether Job's calamity has come from God. No, nobody questions that in the story. The, 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 what they're arguing over is why, right? But, but everybody is focused on what I would call authorial level conversation. Whereas today in the Christian world, I would say as we deal with this, with this pandemic and as we deal with this challenge, 95% of the conversation is happening at the level of agency. I'm, mm. I'm angry at the government. I'm, I'm angry at the church next door. I'm angry. We're, we're operating down at the level of agency. They're operating up at the level of author. And I, I think that's a significant difference. That's a good point. Anyone else want to jump in there? How can we stormproof our life? How can we, how can we get better at dealing with tragedy? I think it, it's uh, key that you learn to preach the gospel to yourself. And I mean, the fact that you're uh, a Bible reader is, is a good step. Um, learn the difference between what you know and how you feel. Um, all that to say, um, you know, as you, 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 you start storing up, you, you may not be in a situation anything like Job. You might be in sunshine and roses right now but uh you know you're storing these things away you're studying the word you're reading the word you're hopefully in prayer walking with the lord you coming to know god um so that in the moment when you find yourself in crisis or in tragedy um you're able even though your emotions don't feel like hey i want to praise god your knowledge and and deeper than that your your very heart um, is able to resonate with God. I think Job has that. He's a man who has walked with God long enough to say, I feel terrible. And even to the point of saying, I'm in, in despair. I wish I had never been born, but here's what I know. You know, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I, and I think that's that's not something that happens quickly. That's something that that happens little bit by little bit by little bit. But then in that moment, you need to be able to say to yourself, if, if there's nobody else to say it to you, what do I know? And I'm going to stand on what I know. That's good. I would, I would say, you know, part of what Job does um, that we all need to learn a little more of is lament. Hmm. You know, 
uh, it's funny, the, the, the word for lament, lamentation, means, the Hebrew word means how. You just talked about this question, Paul. This is what we always ask this question, why? Well, that's what yeah. the word lamentations means. How? Like, how could this happen? Yeah. And I, and I really think that a lot of us are not able to endure storms of life because we haven't learned, we don't have the tools that lament gives us yeah. to wrestle through these things like Job did. You know, starting with that kind of kingdom perspective, that heaven perspective, we're not in this sub sub reality, we're in, you know, we're, we're looking beyond to see everything and lament really teaches us how to do that. It, it gets us to be really honest with how we're feeling. It gets us to really be like, okay, what am I actually feeling deep down? What's the stuff I don't want to say? What's yeah. the fear is what's the theology that I'm doubting? What, what, what are the things about God that I'm feeling that I, that I know are wrong, but I, I feel them, you know, it gets us to be real with that. It gives us an opportunity to confess them to God, to voice those things to God. And then it, the beautiful thing about lament is it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop in complaining. What happens is we move to meditating on the promises of God, meditating on his character, on his covenants to us, on his promises, on his steadfast love. And then at the end, that kind of helps us find this kind of rest and peace. And so I think what Job does throughout the book, what we see throughout the Psalms and the book of Lamentations is that there are skills that we need to foster and learn. And we've just lost them because we don't lament. We don't ever yeah. just accept, Hey, this is how I'm feeling. Life sucks sometimes. How could this happen? And then train ourselves to, okay, That's but good. what does the Bible say? Who is God? And so I would say, you know, lament is uh, definitely something that we need in order to help withstand the storms of life. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you certainly see that in the Psalms. I mean, what lament does is it teaches us what to do with anger, right? Yeah. Lament says, take, turn your anger into prayer. And then that way, God will either do something with it or he'll just hold on to it until you see things better. But if you don't know how to do that, then you end up just, you, you expend your anger laterally and it ends up mm -hmm. landing on people it shouldn't. You end up being angry at the agent uh, instead of doing business with the author. Um, and, and you know, you, you, you're seeing that, I think, in the evangelical world. We don't know how to lament. So what we've just become is angry tweeters. Yeah. Um, and, and I think lament could help us. Pray some violent prayers, and, and maybe then you'll be a little more peaceful with, with your brothers and sisters. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, good, 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 good. I want to hit something else. Uh, uh, by the way, thanks for bringing the smarter uh, Graham to yeah. the, the pen. <laughs> it uh, just sort of happened. <laughs> That's great. It's God's awesome. Well, you, you, you set it up well, uh, you know, by telling us about her great theological insights. So that's perfect timing. Uh, well, I want to also move two chapters forward into, uh, into Job, if I can. Uh, we were talking a moment ago about just, I think the great, one of the great lines, you got to have this highlight in your Bible, Job 13, 15. Uh, but then Eliphaz, here's, here's one of the tricky ones. Eliphaz in Job 15, 4, He's responding to, to Job's protestations of innocence. Job has been saying, this suffering is not due to any particular sin. I don't know what's going on. And Eliphaz is not just angry, but he's concerned ab about what, what this could do. Because Job's an, uh, a leader. He's setting an example. So he says this, Job 15.4, But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. So Eliphaz thinks that the cause of religion will suffer. Uh, it'll be negatively affected in the, in the area by anybody encountering the story. 
if Job's thesis is proven right. If we give up this idea that God makes good people wealthy and healthy, and God makes bad people sick and poor, then who will bother to be a good person? The end result will be immorality and chaos. So here's my question. Obviously, that's wrong. So what is the godly, what is the appropriate motivation for godly behavior? The book of Job is saying that, that it, it's not going to earn us health and wealth. The apostle Paul is saying it's not going to earn us salvation. So then why bother? Why, why would anybody do that? Uh, what's the biblical motivation for righteous behavior? And then maybe a sub-question of part B, how great a danger is there in us actually sliding into the Eliphaz voice both as pastors and parents, because every once in a while I talk and it sounds like I'm Eliphaz. Um, so how close is, is the Eliphaz voice inside each of us, but maybe move from A to B. And I'll just throw that out generally. I mean, I'm sure you, you, you all have thoughts on this. This is a big, a big topic in the, in the yeah. study of Job. Yeah. Uh, all right. Wyatt, do you want to go? You know, you, I, I love to hear from you. You just go. All right. <laughs> uh, I, I would say, um, so the question is, um, if 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 it's not karma, if if good deeds don't bring about beneficial results, and I could end up like Job, even though I've been a righteous man, um, what is the motivation for doing right? That's the question. Yeah. Well, if good deeds aren't going to make you rich, according to Job, and they're not going to make you healthy, and if they can't earn your salvation, why do good deeds? Right. And so the answer I would give, and this is very, very important, is because you must, if you don't have a desire to do what is right, you're not a Christian. Right. Now, that, that, be careful with that, because Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, that which I do, I don't want to do that, which I want to do, this I don't do. But even in that, we hear this constraint that isn't based on reward and isn't based on earning something. It's based on the regenerated work of the Holy Spirit. This is a man who has got a new life. I mean, you can go to Ephesians 2 and see what we were beforehand, where we had a desire for sinfulness. If you find in yourself a consistent desire to live sinfully, uh, you've got a serious, serious problem. You need to do business with God because the, the result of regeneration in your heart should be an inclination towards righteousness, a desire for that. And, and I would say that that that's not motivated by any sort of promise or reward or even heaven. That is simply the, the result of the Holy Spirit indwelling a person. That's good. Yeah. I, you're kind of answering two there or providing two different answers. One of them I hadn't thought of, although, as you said it, I thought of it, the uh, make your election sure, as, as Peter says. So there's a sense in which good deeds and good behavior and whatnot can contribute to our sense of assurance. But then you also touched on, on desire uh, that, that this a Christian should want to do these things. I think a Romans eight or Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed. So, a desire to do good is is instinctive, is normal for the Christian. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. And let me just yeah. push just a little further to make sure I'm clear here. Good works is is always the fruit of and never the root of. Uh, my my right standing with God. Yeah. Uh, if you yeah. don't have a desire for 
God or for righteousness. If you're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, don't go out and start saying, well, what good things do I need to do so that I can be justified before God? Go back to God and say, what's, what's the matter here? Save me, I'm a sinner. And the result of that will be an inclination towards righteousness and the fruit that God promises. Yeah, the fruit and root thing is fun. I remember a couple of years ago, I was trying, I couldn't remember whether it was Calvin or Luther who said, um, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. And I, I couldn't remember which one it was. So I Googled it and I discovered they both said it independent of one another with slight word variations, but it appeared in both of their writings. So it's worth knowing, regardless of who you attribute it to, uh, we're saved by faith alone but the faith that saves us is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. All right. Any, either you guys want to jump in with what are, cause we've, we actually haven't covered what is normally the number one answer. What, what is the, the motivation for righteousness and, and good behavior? There's no one thing. Um, just thinking of Martin Luther, you could answer it. It, uh, good works, please God, it, not in a salvific way, just good. And it yeah. loves your neighbor. <laughs> Yeah, you can do good works, not for your salvation, but because it pleases God and it's a way to love your neighbor. Yeah, love. I mean, love is obviously a good motivator. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like I would say, Jesus says, you know, John 14, 15, <clears throat> if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He says in verse 23, like, I think what's a gospel motivator for good growth and good works is the gospel. Like it's, yeah. it's the fact that, that Christ it flows from not living under the condemnation of the law of shame of sin, but reminding myself that Christ died for me. I am his. I look to eternity. I keep my gaze on the big picture. God does not see me in my sin. He sees Christ. He, yeah. the, the gospel is this gospel filled life is a life that is steeped in the grace of Christ. You know, like I think, I think of what m leads us most to disobedience is a lack of faith. It's we believe we're condemned. We believe Christ is repelled by us. We believe God's wrath is still on us for our sins. And so condemnation kind of keeps us under a law. That's why I think Paul in Romans 2 talks about how true obedience comes from circumcised hearts. Yeah. He's, he says it's a heart that's been transformed by the spirit and your desire is to please God, not man. Like that's where this stuff comes from, a, a heart that lives in the love of God. And, I, and maybe even to even add to that, I would say, a heart to glorify God. Like I think of Philippians one where it talks about how he desires that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you might approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ to the glory and praise of God. So it's kind of like, as we grow and we look more like Jesus, it gives God glory. We're praising him. We're, we're hallowing the name of Jesus. And so I think love, grace, I think those are the best motivators, like in a marriage, like that's the best motivators. I love you. And I I'm celebrating the love that we have. That's good. Yeah. I, I mean, historically, uh, I think of a Heidelberg catechism, whatnot, historically, the reformed, the first reformed answer is usually gratitude that, that we obey, that we uh, act in a righteous manner as a grateful response to the grace of God and Christ, yeah. not to earn our salvation, but to respond to it. Um, and that, and I would also just say the Holy Spirit, um, like if we're truly saved and if the Holy Spirit's inside of us, then there's this, there's this new impulse that's, that's driving me in the direction of, of Jesus. So let's get on to part B of that. Okay. So if, if that's, those are all good answers, those, you know, we've all been to Sunday school and seminary. 
Um, so those are the answers we're supposed to give. But the reality is, as parents and as pastors, we default to law as a motivation a lot. So help us out. And I'm going to throw this one to Wyatt, even though I didn't tell him that. But you wrote a, you wrote a, a blog recently that I thought was great. Um, I can't remember what it was called. Something about what's the right use of the law or are we still obligated to the law or something of that, that nature. And I think this is one of the most important conversations that Protestant pastors need to have on a regular basis. And if you think that you know it and you don't need it, then you probably need it. Um, it's, it's just a conversation we probably should have every, every couple of years. Uh, it's, it's a debate we should have. So Wyatt, help us out. I'm assuming we can use the law to some extent to, in some way, but then there's some bad ways to use it. How do we use law? How do we not use law to motivate righteous behavior? Yep. Um, simple answer is when Jesus came, he's our high priest with a new priest. There's a new law. It's run under the law of Christ. It's run under the law of Christ. He's a new priest. We're under so the, the new mo- covenant. The Mosaic Code, the Sinai Covenant, whatever you want to call it, is not, yeah, not binding law. on us right now as followers of Christ per se. It's not binding as a law under the old covenant as the nation of Israel. Right. But the entire Old Testament is for us, for wisdom, for pointing to Christ, and is therefore authoritative in our life. So right. I think you can use the entire Old Testament for wisdom, for help, for guidance, for authoritative understanding. And I think you can see some things in the old covenant law that are just embedded in nature to the point that yes. do not murder. I mean, everyone everywhere, they might not obey it, but they'll admit murder is wrong. They right. against their best <laughs> desires will still do evil. That's why people are without excuse, according to Paul in Romans one and two, yeah. because they might know God. They might know what is good, but they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Yeah. And they suppress so without the excuse truth, yeah. because they know right from wrong essentially. So all, all I have to say is when you read the Old Testament law, I think there are some eternal kind of moral things you can see that everyone knows. There are certain things that make sense in the Israelite priesthood, but Jesus is our new priest. And therefore that's not going to happen in the church today. He's a Melchizedekian priest. And there are certain things that are built around Israel and their time in history for civil law. Like don't wear two different kinds of uh, material in your garments that may be illustrated principles like you should be holy but are no longer enforced today in the church. All right. So let me, let me make this real practical for you. And I'll talk as a parent actually, because we're, you know, uh, not, I would imagine many pastors listen to us, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say far more parents listen to us than pastors. So, okay. So here I've said both of these things as a parent and I'm inviting your critique. I've said to my kids, uh, if, if you do this, so whatever, if you, use drugs, if you drink and drive, if you do some sin, if you sleep around uh, and, and have sex before you get married, um, you, very bad things will happen to you. Uh, you know, if, if you use drugs, you're going to reduce your IQ by eight points over your high school career. Um, you're you're going to be more susceptible to hard drugs. You're going to become an addict. You're going you're gonna to die at 31 in a, in a ditch somewhere. I've said that to my kids. Um, I, not exactly that way, but something along those lines. <laughs> All right. And then, and then I'll flip it the other way and I'll say, and if you, if you trust in the word of God, if, if you uh, obey what Jesus says, if you, if you take the word of God seriously, if you make it the rule of your life, um, you know, apart from some providential catastrophe, you are very likely uh, to live a very happy life and, and to, to be blessed, to be filled with joy uh, and to be productive. The way of God leads us in a, in a good way. Okay. Now, I've said other things to them about loving Jesus and all that, but it, was it wrong for me to say those things? Lots no, of head shaking. What no. would be wrong would be if you, if, you, if you said to them, 
um, I love you because you do these things. Right. Instead of saying, I love you because you exist and I'm your father. You know, okay. um, you, you're told, you told them, I mean, all those things were true. You know, that's not the basis of their relationship with you, but all those things are true. Yeah. And I think also saying, if you ever, if, if you do all the right things, you will have an easy and great life. Like you can't make that kind of guarantee. So you're kind of giving them proverbial wisdom, which is on the most part, you're like, you know, on the most part, this is what happens. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. And I think that's very different than saying, Hey, just read your Bible every day and God's going to make you rich and wealthy and healthy. And it's like, well, no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really about the, the extremes, right? Right. Meaning if we, I think we talked about this when we introduced Job, one of the reasons Job is in the Bible is to basically provide some reasonable limits on Proverbs. Um, Generally speaking, you reap what you sow. Generally speaking, if you live by God's word, you'll have a good life. But there are providential exceptions, right? And 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 principles and proverbs are resisted in a fallen world. So, if when we overpromise, and uh, we fall into prosperity gospel. And I would say when, when we make behavior the basis of relationship, whether with us or with God, we fall into the trap of legalism. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Okay. Because what I don't want people to hear is, well, I, well I, I mustn't use the promise of blessing or I mustn't use the rod of the law to, to raise my kids. I would say, no, 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 use them both. Just don't promise salvation on the basis of behavior and, and don't connect you know, relationship to behavior. And, and, and also don't, don't guarantee what are, what are basically proverbs. Proverbs are not promises. Um, I'd even put it, I'd put it this way. Yeah. There's nothing ever wrong with commending good behavior unless you say, if you do good, you'll be saved. Right, good. <laughs> commending good behavior in any circumstance is a good, <laughs> apart yeah. from that being the promise of your eternal salvation. So yeah. good. I, I think you should use all, any kind of means. The one caveat I would say is, if you have a, an 18-year-old who becomes- I do, I have one of almost everything. <laughs> If you have an 18-year-old who becomes uh, a Hindu or uh, some sort of worshiper, an adulterer of some sort, yeah. you don't kill them or under the right. civil law of Moses. Right. It doesn't happen anymore. Right. That's important so There are say. distinctions. Good, good advice. That's debated, by the way, but I, it didn't used to well, be. So well, let's, let's say it again. The civil law of Moses is no longer in force. I shouldn't yes. be asking my MP to, to make childhood rebellion a capital crime in canada correct correct but there might be some underlying wisdom for how israel is run that you can discern oh, I having two or three bunch. witnesses yeah. seems like a wise way to hold to justice but it's no longer in force as a civil right. law on society or on the church right paul so the laws of an ancient agrarian society right. don't need to be enforced precisely and exactly that way in a modern canadian society no right okay well that's extremely helpful and timely advice uh, all right, let's uh, let's move into the New Testament. Uh, in in our first New Testament column, we uh, we came to the end of Mark's Gospel, which means we encountered the single greatest textual criticism controversy uh, for for Christians. Um, I this is this is a big controversy. And it comes up for pastors pastors like like us who who preach through books of the Bible are often terrified of preaching through Mark's gospel <laughs> because they're not sure how they're going to bring it in for a landing Get around that one. Yeah. So, you, you know, question, I'll just ask you, let's go around the panel on this. Uh, each of us sort of can give our, our thoughts. Where does Mark's gospel end in terms of Mark's Mark's words? And what do we do with whatever verses we, 
see remaining there. Mark, do you want to start on that? You're nodding your head again. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so for um, not 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 every not every Bible reader will understand why they have these sort of markers in their Bible, and this yeah. the first time you encounter it might really freak you out because it says in my Bible here I've got the ESV, and when I come to the end of verse eight, there's a little inserted line that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include. And you go, wait, I thought the Bible was without air. And, and right. what do you mean? It, and this is to, to, to be real general. And I know time isn't up the essence, I guess, here. But th this is the difference between the majority text, which we have a lot of that do include it, and the critical text, which we have fewer of, but they occur earlier. And so the question is, and they don't have it. And, and so when we look at the critical text and it doesn't have it, um, we go, well, why doesn't it have it? And when did it come in? And, and that's just to explain why that says that. There's, there's, a, there's two very large groups of texts. One is majority and, and one is critical. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a critical text guy um, and I don't have an issue with that. It doesn't uh, undermine my confidence in scripture. So if I was preaching this, I, I think I would come to my congregation and say, you know, let's talk about why Mark... Uh, ended his gospel with everybody trembling in fear. Um, but let's also, I, I'd probably preach the next week that last section and say, I don't think that this is something that Mark wrote, but I think that the church inserted it because they thought it was important for us to know. And, and the other gospels bear this out. So um, I, I would say it ends at verse eight and that that shouldn't cause us great concern. All right. Yeah, I would also add that like people think they gotcha at this text. It's like, oh, look, gotcha. It's like, yeah. you understand how long we've known this is in here? Like, this is not a gotcha moment, you know? Like, this is not a problem for us. And just like Mark's answer, I, I think is great. I mean, I look at it and I just see like, oh, Jesus appears to disciples. That reminds me of, I know no scholars do this, but like, that reminds me of the road to Emmaus. And oh, he's talking about what's going to happen in Acts. So like, even what's in here inherently, I don't find personally offensive, um, but I totally understand where Mark ends. And uh, it's not a problem that, yeah, a lot, majority texts have some of this. Again, it's just not a gotcha moment. Yeah, no, that's well said. I mean, if, if I took some uh, New Testament critical classes in, at, in university at York, so meaning you're sitting with people who, who probably took that course to find gotcha moments to, yeah. make, to make their you know, home church pastors cry. And, and this just isn't one of them. Uh, everything that we actually believe and that is critical is in the verifiable aspects of, yep. of Mark. So it, it says pretty clearly in verse six there, he has risen, yeah. he is not here. See the place where they laid him. So that's the bit, if that verse was missing, that's a gotcha moment, but it's there. I mean, we're, we're into, into details that are repeated in Matthew is so yeah no no gotcha moment that's for sure why do you want to add anything well i would just the one note i would add is an, another angle is one of the things when you look at all the different manuscripts and all the data that we have one of the unique things about the bible is there's so much of it in history yeah. everywhere and in all places numbers witnesses to what the original text said that it's almost the once you look at things like this it's almost the opposite impression that you get we have so much such an accurate and historical layer of manuscripts behind our Bibles mm -hmm. compared to any 
I think to any other classical text, I, I can't think of anything. Oh, even there's close nothing to that it. comes close. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. That something like this just shows you that we have a glut of riches. Yeah. We have too much in a sense, you know, yeah. or not it's too a, much. It's a great, it's a great uh, controversy that only we can have uh, right. because we have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of this, of this document. Yeah, I just, so I, anyways, I would say there, there's some confusion here, but there's so much confidence you can gain from having a conversation yeah. about why this is here. Yeah. But I think we can accent that and that can be quite helpful for faith as well. Now, as, as comfortable as we are, we're all sitting here going, oh, you know, what's the big deal? I can tell you this. It's a big deal for people at Pew level. So I yeah, preached through the Gospel of Mark, I think, in 2015. We had two families leave when, when I made the point that Mark's Gospel ends at verse 9. That, and I, I, even, I was very careful. I didn't want to say this is my opinion. So I, I, said, I said to them, I don't own a commentary written in the last 100 years that argues in favor of the longer ending of Mark's gospel. I just don't. Um, James Edwards, so the Pillar New Testament commentary, D.A. Carson is, is the general editor of the, of the Pillar New Testament commentary. He says, it is virtually certain that chapter six or 16, nine, nine to 20 is a later edition and not the original ending of the gospel of Mark. Uh, William Lane again, that would be one that every evangelical pastor would have on his shelf, says the earliest Greek versional and patristic evidence supports the conclusion that Mark ended his gospel at chapter 16, verse 8. Dennis Nineham, who's a literary genius, not necessarily an evangelical, says the undisputed facts are that everything which follows 16, verse 8 in any surviving manuscript can confidently be declared non-Markan. Uh, R.T. France, again, one of the evangelical giants, he doesn't even consider it an open question. Uh, he simply explains why he doesn't address it in his commentary. He says, the purpose of this note is not to argue again for what is the virtually unanimous verdict of modern scholarship that the authentic text of Mark ends at 16.8, but rather to set out as simply and clearly as possible, which inevitably will mean some oversimplification of the data, which contributes to that consensus. And then Robert Gundry, who's middle of the road evangelical, he doesn't even have a comment on why he just ends his commentary at verse eight, meaning he just considers it not an interesting issue. So meaning everyone in, in the world, everyone in evangelical scholarship understands that, yeah, it just, it ended earlier than you think it does. You've got an interesting little text note, um, but that's, that's all it is. Even still, uh, evangelicals at pew level, particularly if they love their King James Bible, will, will, will give you, will be offended at this. Not, not all of them, but maybe 2% or something of that nature. So you do have to be prepared. Uh, do your homework, have seven or eight quotes on this because uh, it because it does come up. And I would I would recommend, Paul, even your, you wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition about this that's yeah. up there. So people can go and check that out and if they want more info. Yeah, because it, it does come up. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say dropping it out means you don't have to deal with handling snakes and drinking poison. <laughs> True. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's, that's helpful as well. Uh, Time-wise, I think we're okay. We've got one, you know, a couple of conversations that I want to do, but Rob, could you don't need to give us too much because yep. we've already done Matthew and Mark, but we, we're going to hit Luke. Uh, give us a, a quick introduction on Luke. Yeah, quick distinctives about Luke. Um, uh, first of all, again, just so people remember, this is book one or part one of Luke's story, like book of Acts is kind of part two. And Luke actually tells us, you always want to look for these little notes in a, in a book of the Bible where it tells you why they're writing. Um, Luke tells us right off the bat, it's so that we would have an orderly account of Christ's earthly ministry. He's writing to this person, or maybe this is a, a name of a group of people, but Theophilus. And he says, um, you know, he wants him to have confidence in the gospel. 
So his goal is to clear away the cobwebs and to make a very clear, orderly account for this person. And so we see that very clearly in this gospel. It is a very, there's almost like an apologetic nature to it. Luke is historically verifying facts and events with this gospel, very much like the, the book of Acts. Yeah. Luke is close with the apostle Paul. Uh, we know that from the from uh, the book of Acts, so it becomes clear that Paul's one of his sources. And in Luke's gospel, he has a number of stories that aren't in other gospels as well. We've got Zacchaeus, pe- the penitent thief, the road to Emmaus, um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, to name to name a few. Um, so Luke's verifying these things, and he's got all the best Christmas stories. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> we always go here for Christmas. <laughs> Everyone's like, "Yeah, where's Mark during Christmas?" Nobody. One of the ways that we can see Luke um, defending and verifying the person of Christ is seen in how he makes the point to show how Christ is fulfilling Old Testament Old Testament scriptures. So again, Luke is very keenly doing things to pr- to present an apologetic, orderly, clear historical account so that we might have confidence in what the gospel teaches. And you see this throughout. Um, it also follows a geographical progression, again, kind of like Acts. Um, it starts after the, the birth narrative in Galilee, and it kind of progressively moves towards Jerusalem. So again, you know, when you read Luke, understand his focus. It's an orderly, verifiable, theologically clear account of the ministry of Christ so that we can have confidence in the gospel that we know and that we've learned. And it's, it's just kind of a great place to go to, to land things kind of historically and verifiably. Great gospel for that. Yeah, I, I would say that preaching through Luke was one of the best experiences of my pastoral career. Loved it. Mm. Highly recommend it. Mark, we also started into 1 Corinthians. Give us 90 seconds on that, just in terms of maybe also help people figure out why it reads so differently than like Romans or Ephesians. Right. So in, in Romans and Ephesians, those, those are great uh, texts for first time preachers in a way, because they're almost purely propositional truth. There's point, sub point, sub point, sub point, sub point. You know, the Apostle Paul is basically laying out uh, an argument that is universal and applicable to any church in any place at any time. Book of Romans, boom. Uh, Corinthians is, is very much a letter to a church that is in crisis. They've got quarrels going on. They've got popularity contests that are going on. Uh, they've got tension with the relationship between their founding uh, pastor or apostle that Paul that some of them don't like him um, so he's having to, to write uh, this letter to and it, it's got a lot of corrective stuff in it mm-hmm. interspersed in there is all sorts of propositional truth all sorts of doctrinal material um, but you just have to be a little bit careful in in how you apply it it it's it's a situation when you get into Corinthians where you really have got to apply a little bit of a hermeneutical hermeneutical spiral where you start going okay uh what does the text mean to the people in corinth now let's lift that up and say what are the what are the truths that are being taught here and then once you've got that you can take those truths and say how are these things applicable to my life because there's certain things in that are happening in corinth that aren't going to be happening in walsh or aurelia or georgetown or, Although it's amazing how often they do, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's quite applicable. The other thing I would say about it, I I'm always encouraged. I think I'm always encouraged when I encounter books of the Bible that have got really weird 
sideways stuff going on because it helps me to think, okay, so things at my church aren't as bad as I thought they were, because if this could be happening in the New Testament church, I guess we're, you know, we're a normal church um, that's having to wrestle through these things. That's good, man. I appreciate that. One thing I want to uh, land on, this will be kind of our last uh, conversation today, uh, but from 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Very, very interesting story. Oh, well, I, I, very disturbing story, uh, but but very useful, I, th- I think, for us to think through. Uh, I'll, I'll, for those of you who don't know the story, this story is there, the church was um, tolerating somebody in the, in the membership that they shouldn't have been. This was somebody who was living in open sin. Uh, he had actually seduced his father's new wife. So um, probably the son and the new wife were, were closer in age than the new wife and the, and the, the father were. But regardless, he had seduced this woman, was living openly with her to the father's great shame, obviously. And Paul was horrified that the church hadn't done anything about it, that they hadn't enacted any discipline. Uh, so he, I'm going to just fire out a couple rapid fire questions. Um, number one, does Paul assume that the Leviticus holiness code is still in effect here? Uh, or is he relying on natural law to make this determination? Because uh, he's basically rebuking a case of incest, but incest isn't dealt with anywhere else in the New Testament. So is he is he relying on the Leviticus Holiness Code or natural law? How, how does he get here? Number two, why doesn't Paul follow the protocols of Matthew 18? Uh, he doesn't meet privately with the individual. He doesn't send a delegation of two. He literally writes a letter saying... Uh, Bingo, bango, this guy's excommunicated. Send me a letter when it's done. Um, so that's interesting. Number three, are Christians supposed to judge or not to judge? It's confusing. Uh, Paul says there's some we are in, in a way and then we're not in a way. And so unpack that. And then just if we have time, how does the Passover illustration fit into this? Paul, Paul works a Passover illustration. You know, Christ is the Passover lamb. How, we don't come to Passover with crumbs in the house. So why are we coming to the Lord's table with crumbs in the house? It's, it's a very un- interesting and unusual metaphor. Love to hear that unpacked a little bit. You can each grab one of those or two of those, however you like. Or you can do Stephen Bray and answer them all. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, you weren't here for that. But in our last week, I threw out four and Stephen answered them all very well, leaving nothing for the rest of us to do, but <laughs> admire his pastoral acumen. So, yeah. Well, the first question, I think the entire law is for us, for wisdom, points to Christ, for practical life. I don't think the holiness code is in effect in terms of law over us simply because Jesus is our high priest. And you kind of see that, especially in the way that he applies the Passover. <laughs> like he applies it in ways that are unique to the Christian experience. Christ is our Passover lamb, not a lamb that we slaughter, but Christ who is the lamb. The unleavened and leavened bread is then used as metaphor for uh, ethical action. So think you can already see by the way that he's using the old testament that he's doing something that is not like a direct one-to-one correlation with holiness code being law over israel as a nation but he's integrating it into the experience of the church given the risen christ who's a high priest under the new covenant and under the new law now so yes so yes 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 i agree with everything you just said i don't want anyone to hear this interjection as a as a debate i actually just want to draw more out of you so yes um but at the same time he says that uh, th- this behavior, the man committing incest, is a-, a behavior that's tolerated not even among the pagans. So it does appear to be drawing on natural law. So help us figure that out. Well, I, I, I must, okay, I'll answer again. I, mean, I think in the Old Testament, 
you do see God making commands that are throughout the law that are republishing natural law. Natural law is simply the law that everyone knows by conscience. You're so everyone that knows that incest is wrong, even if they commit it, even if they suppress that knowledge. So, so think, as to commit it, that's right. that's natural law. That's conscience. We all know. Yeah, that. Romans that's 2, programmed 14. in. Even Gentiles to do the law that's written on their hearts, they know yeah. it. They're without. I'm excuse. not saying that because I because I didn't. Think no, I get it. it. Yeah. I, I want to make sure people hear that because I think Carl Truman at the end of his book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, said something I, I just think everyone should hear. If you don't even read the whole book, read the last five pages. One of the things he says is the reason we're having such a hard time responding to the transgender issue, for example, in the church, is because we've lost the category of natural law, uh, which was a major pillar in the, in, in the way that the church addressed moral issues in the Reformation era. And, and even just to add yeah. to that exact point, I mean, Scripture says this, but also nature says this, that things have a point. They have a purpose behind them. Sex yeah. has purpose and meaning. Uh, marriage has purpose and meaning. There, there's actual publicly accessible realities that we can see by biology and by reality. Like, you know, we don't necessarily need a Bible verse. We do have Bible verses for it, but we don't need one because it's just there in front of us. Like the moon is in front of us. Yeah. And uh, I know that's controversial to our culture to some degree today, but it, it's true. A male yeah. is a male. Well, we're we're, we're deep into our suppression uh, narrative, yeah. but but I would say what's beautiful in this story is that you see the contour of the gospel, the guidance of the Old Testament moral code, and the witness of natural law all arguing together in the same passage, saying that the same behavior is wrong, right? So he he's he's not shy about pointing to the holiness code, uh, but he also says, hey, this is natural law. The pagans know this too, but then. His, you know, his coup de grace is, is, the, is the contours of the gospel, that Christ is our pastor. All three are in agreement. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that's massively important for people to see. Yeah, good. Thank you, Wyatt. Uh, anyone else want to grab one of those? Or have you forgotten them now? Because we talked, Wyatt and I talked so much about natural law. I think, you know, why doesn't Paul follow the protocols in Matthew 18? Uh, I think there would be a couple things. I mean, Matthew 18 certainly is, is speaking about a personal offense done to somebody and addressing somebody. There, I think there are better texts to go do when you're talking about uh, people committing open sin in the church and how is that supposed to be handled? Like I think of Galatians 1, where it yeah. says, if anybody's caught in any transgression, you who or are Galatians spiritual- Galatians 6-1, I think. Is that what you're quoting? Galatians 6-1, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, brother, if, if somebody's caught in transgression, go to them, and those of you who are spiritual should restore them. Yeah. Um, but then someone would go, well, wait, doesn't look like Paul's doing that here. He's just kind of kicking the guy out the door. And I think even what Paul says later, like in, in verse 11, there seems to be this, hey, if somebody's living in flagrant, completely yeah. disobedient, unrepentant sin, there seems to be this standard of, you know, hey, don't associate with a brother yeah. a, or a sister who are in the faith, who claim the name of Jesus, but who are also guilty a flagrant sexual immorality or yeah. sin or greed or anything. He's like, don't even eat with those people, you know, hand them over to Satan. Right. So I think there's this idea of flagrant, disobedient, public sin, unrepentant. Um, there's a, there's a standard here, a different kind of category for people like that. And it's, yeah. you know, you, you kick them out. That's a really important insight. I think a lot of people overuse Matthew 18. They think it's they think it's a, a constitution for how to deal with all sin. Yeah. The, reading the introduction to that, Jesus talks about if your brother sins against you. So this yeah. is like a guy Personal. keyed your car in the parking lot of yeah. the church. This is how you deal with that. This this is not the text for 
there's an elder in the church having an affair with his secretary that everybody knows about. No, no, like we got, we have got text for that, but that Matthew 18 is not that. Yeah. Yeah. Mark. There's two things I'd want to add to this conversation. Uh, one is that the, this is not the first time they've heard about this. There's actually, Paul has written, Paul writes to the Corinthian church four times. That's right. Two of the times we have, um, uh, recorded for us that the Holy Spirit inspired it. The other two, they were pastoral letters that the Holy Spirit didn't preserve for us. So the first letter comes before 1 Corinthians, and he references it here yeah, in verse nine. chapter 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So this is not like a bolt out of the blue. Paul has already addressed this issue. He has sent a letter and said, you guys need to deal with this. And this is the second letter saying, I already wrote to you about this. Um, and, and he's wanting to make some corrections because they've taken it to some wrong extremes. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not saying to you, don't associate with the sexually immoral who aren't Christians, but I am saying to you, if a person uh, is claiming to follow Christ and conducting themselves in a way that even an unbeliever wouldn't put them out. And that's the second thing I want to talk about is um, there is a redemptive uh, aspect to that he says in verse five you're to deliver this man to satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord and that's not a guaranteed it will be saved if you do this that's the hope of the apostle paul that this dramatic action will be enough to wake this guy up to the fact that you are not a christian that you are uh, we don't believe your profession and we are putting you out of the church yeah. so that you might finally wake up to the fact and repent of this thing. That's the way that he'll be saved is, is, but you cannot, you will not help a person who is living in open sin by nodding your head and, and giving him license. That is no help to that person. The only help that could be given to that person is to say, we don't believe your profession and, and your wickedness is such that we have to put you outside. But there's also that continued we're praying for you and we want you to come to repentance. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, there's nothing more unloving than than affirming someone's profession of faith when their life clearly indicates that they're not a believer. There's nothing more unloving than that because it it, it leaves them outside the kingdom of God uh, and they don't even know it. So in that, in that sense, putting them outside, withholding the table from them is a way of saying, listen, we love you, but we can't affirm your profession of faith. We think you're outside the kingdom of God. And, and that, that may be the very thing that saves, the, saves their soul for all eternity. Yeah. Can I give us a really practical, like a one-to-one -one way to think about this too? Yeah. I think one of our temptations today is to empathize with people's sin. Yeah. So you should sympathize with people like when they're plight. I'm not saying that. Sometimes when we're with friends and we're a little bit timid and they're sinning greatly and we, we empathize, we try to get into their experience and feel it, but I think we have to be really careful that we don't wrongly empathize with sin. Don't wrongly give the impression that we are okay with that experience and we want to participate in it. Um, it sounds a bit abstract, but I think it's a temptation for all of us to be, we can be totally kind, totally courteous, totally loving. And I don't have to empathize with you cheating on your wife. I just don't have right. to. I won't. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. And that, you know, we didn't touch on this, but uh, it, it kind of connects with what you're just saying, Wyatt. I, one of the things that I tried to wrestle down uh, when I was podcasting on First Corinthians is whether that phrase, with such a one, do not even eat, 
whether that is an, is an explicit reference to communion or whether that is sort of um, referring to, to just general fellowship. Like if I'm in Tim Hortons and this guy comes in, do I get out? And it was interesting. I, I, there's a, a spectrum of opinion on that, but what I would say where it appears that most of the commentators land it, is that Paul was intentionally broad with his language so as to basically include communion and any act of table fellowship that would unwittingly do what you've just said, empathize with the behavior uh, or unwittingly affirm the brother in, in that course of action. Mm. Um, so he's, he's not, this isn't a call for shunning, you know, so I, if I'm in the lineup at Tim Hortons and this, and this right. brother comes in, I don't need to, you know, back out of Tim Hortons while making the sign of the cross. Like um, <laughs> it, it's not that, but I probably shouldn't have this guy over to my house and commiserate over his, over how mean the elders were to him either. You know what the best compliment would be? This this person is always kind, always loves me. Will, will hear nothing about my adultery. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. will not. Well, I Meaning, you can't attack the person. There's a clear sense. Of, Jesus came to be with sinners. Yeah, right. But Jesus never like said, "I love your sin." Right. That's unacceptable. He loves you. And there's the difference between an, a, a professed believer who's sinning yeah, and. That's true. Yeah. So, cause, and Paul makes that point. He says, I'm, you know, I'm not talking about people out in the world. This is, I'm not saying you can't have your common law neighbors over for a barbecue, right? Like let's do that. If you, if your neighbors are, are unbelievers and they're not married and they're living together, please have them over for dinner. But if they're members of your church and they refuse to repent of their sin, please don't have them over for anyone who, who, anyone who bears the name of brother. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, I've had situations before, and it's not easy to do as a pastor, where you sit down with somebody who has been part of your church, and they they say, you know, what you said in that sermon is hurtful to me because it seems to center me out. And, and I've had to say to them, um, I could not be a loving, caring pastor to you and leave you in a situation where you didn't think that you need to do business with God because there's, yeah. there's open sin in your life. It would be unloving of me to say, and to say that to them tenderly and gently yeah, and yeah. with the desire that, that they, that they would repent. And I've had situations. I've had, I had one man um, leave my church and to the end of his life, he refused to even shake my hand in the street because he was so angry that I would refuse to acknowledge his profession while he was living in open sin. And I had another guy uh, who repented of that, uh, was yeah. baptized, and uh, is today uh, an active part of a, a worship team in, in another church. He moved to another town, but you know, you get different results from those things. But yeah, you do. I, I think what just one more thing, Paul, I think yep. is, is key is that our church understands church discipline. Yeah. Because how toxic can it be if we as pastors and shepherds are trying to do something and then members of our church who are just unaware or are empathetic, like Wyatt said, come in and undermine the process by having those people into their home and going, oh, yeah, the elders, oh, they're, you know, yeah. throwing stones through glass windows, glass homes, you know, and it's just like, you know, our church needs to understand why God has created the church to work this way and why church discipline is yeah. important. It's typically not elders and staff who are the problem. It's it's people in the church who are undermining this work, this redemptive work yeah. that we're doing in the life of this person who that's where the danger comes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's why I think you've got to preach in this passage in all of its, you know, because this passage will, will solve, if you preach this passage well, it solves like three or four or five problems simultaneously. Yeah. So 
that's well said, but preach, preach on church discipline before you're doing church discipline uh, is, is a word of advice I'd give to any pastors who happen to be listening on. Well, that's great. And we've covered a lot of ground today. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm sure that's going to be very helpful. Um, we're going to be back on February 24th, uh, but that will be our last episode of Going Deeper Online for this, uh, for this series, this iteration. We started doing this, or we brought this out of mothballs, really, because um, our provinces were going through lockdown, and we just thought it would be helpful as people weren't able to meet with their regular Bible study groups. Uh, but other than Newfoundland, uh, we are now emerging from lockdown. And so people are going to be heading back to groups. And, and NBC. So, and NBC, that's right. Yeah, they're not doing too much. So uh, we're going to shelve this again. Our, uh, February 24th will be our last one for a bit. I've got, a, I've got a, an in-person group starting up that night. I'm sure you, uh, you, you do as well. So uh, this will be it for a while as of the 24th. Uh, but Wyatt, uh, before we, we close this program, I'm wondering if you could pray for us, pray for our listeners, and uh, pray for our leaders as well. Lord, thank you for your kindness in simply giving us your clear word so that we could know it and through it know you and know how to live and how to flourish and what to do and all the complexities of life. Pray for all of us who are on this Zoom call right now. You'd help us in our respective ministries, help us with our families, with our if we have children with our children, give us grace and help. Pray for those listening that they would be encouraged by your word in a time when many people are discouraged. Lord, please, even through this program, if people are just able to get more into their Bible, to understand it better, and to hear from you more clearly through your written word, I pray that that happens and that lives are changed, souls are renewed, and you restore the joy of many people's salvation through this. Lord, I pray this in your son's name. Amen. 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 Well, thanks for joining us, friends. Really appreciate you and uh, really appreciate all those uh, listening and watching on. God willing, we'll be right back here next Thursday, February 24th for our final episode for now of Going Deeper Online with the fabulous Into the Word panel. So we'll see you then. God bless. <laughs>